Hey, this is Seth Scruggs, co-host of Rewatch. We're very excited to announce that we are going to be premiering a short film called Five Minutes. It was directed by me, and it was produced and written by Zachary Vaughn. We shot it back in December, and we're getting ready to release it on August 28th at 6 p.m. It will be premiering on YouTube as a live premiere. Uh, you can find all the information on Instagram at MarkSpotsTheX Productions. Following the premiere of the film, we are going to be hosting a live Q&A at 6.15 uh, where we're going to talk about the film and you can come out and ask us questions and we'll be excited to answer them. August 28th at 6pm with a Q&A following at 6.15, the premiere of 5 Minutes, a short film by Seth Scruggs and Zachary Vaughn. Hello and welcome to Rewatch. My name is Seth Scruggs and I'm joined by my co-host Zachary Vaughn. Hello. And this is the show about movies we love and movies we haven't seen yet. Each week one of us picks a movie that one of us has seen but the other hasn't and then we talk about it. Um, That's the gist of the show and yeah I guess we can just jump right in. I don't know Mm -hmm. if we do we need to say anything before we really get started. I don't think so. You, You picked this one. I did pick this one, so I guess I'll just jump right in. I don't know. I feel like we should have like banter or something before. I always feel like we just kind of jump, but I guess we can just jump in. I mean, we do that. We do that before we record. That's true. But that's just that's true. Just us trying to figure out what the heck we're doing. <laughs> yep, basically. All right. Well, let's just jump into it then. So this week we're talking about rope. It is a 1948 film directed by Alfred Hitchcock, stars John Dahl and Farley Granger, as well as Jimmy Stewart and a bunch of other people. Um, Yeah, this essentially it's about two uh, young high society people who murder their friend just to see if they can get away with it. And then they stash him in a cupboard and host a dinner party on top of it. Yeah. That that's it basically is. the film. That's exactly what it is, yeah. And this and I want to point out that obviously this is this very spoilery podcast. There are no spoilers attached to that. Uh that's just that's how the film opens is with a strangulation. Um with mm-hmm. a rope. Roll yeah. credits. Um yeah, so There's lots of unique stuff about this film, uh, lots of film history things. Uh, But before we get into all of that, I want to hear, Zach, your first impressions of this film. I thought it was good. Um, That's mostly it. I thought it was I thought (laughs) it was a really cool idea. You know that I'm a sucker for really cool gimmicks. Yeah, Um, so it's worth noting before we jump into this that the film is sort of made to look like it is done in one take. Um, So lots of camera movement and hidden cuts and that kind of thing. Continue. So that's actually not the gimmick I was talking about that I liked about it. I thought that gimmick gimmick was okay. Yeah, so did Hitchcock. We'll probably probably get to that later, but... I thought the gimmick, um, 
I, I thought the story gimmick was really cool. Yeah. In that these guys set up their own worst case scenario mm-hmm. just so that they could get away with it. Yeah. That's the gimmick that I really liked. And it's mm-hmm. dark, I know, but I thought it was really cool. Um just because in in a in a very, 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 very alternate universe. I could see possibly <laughs> if I were a completely different person. Really, really stress the hypothetical nature of what you're about. I to could say. hypothetically consider doing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's an it's an interesting concept. Um just from the from the get-go. The fact that the premise is, you know, a lot of movies, the mystery of the movie is like who committed the murder. And in this movie, the mystery is who's going to find out about the murder. Um, and I, I think that's it's an it's a good way to like hook you mm-hmm. um, as you uh, start the film. Yeah. And because and I, I, audience I retention, audience, re- audience retention is key, which yeah. is why if you're still with us, thanks. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Um, so let's talk about the other gimmick of the film. And Uh, what other gimmick is that, Seth? (laughs) The fact that it is sort of made to look like it is done in one take. So for those of you listening, uh, who may not understand how that works. So a lot of times films are shot in multiple takes from multiple different angles. And it's one big, big expensive camera that moves around to get all of the coverage. This film was shot to look like it was done in one take, which is incredibly difficult. Um, it's difficult now. There are a few films that have attempted to do that, um, such as Birdman, which was uh, a film done like that recently, 1917, uh, very recently, um, where the camera is constantly moving and changing and following the characters. Of course, it's not actually done in one take because time is condensed and things change and visual effects and people mess up but basically the there those cuts are hidden in places where you can't see them take place um you know it, the whole screen goes black for a second or the camera get like everything is blurry so you can like hide a cut there uh, lots of different ways that you can do that of course with a movie made in 1948 there's the added pressure of the fact that you're shooting on film and each uh, reel only allows you to shoot for about 11 minutes. So every 11 minutes, roughly in a rope, there is some sort of a cut there. I, if I remember correctly, they alternate between um, a direct cut that you can like see like, okay, it cut from one side of the room to the other and a hidden cut where most of the time it'll like close in on someone's back and then cut and then pull out and it, it's changed. Uh, yeah. So the camera is moving a lot. The camera, like lots of things are, uh, you know, shifting and moving. The set is shifting and moving. Uh, but I'm curious, like on a first time you've seen, have you seen Birdman? I've not seen Birdman. 
You've seen 1917? I have seen 1917. Okay. So seeing kind of a recent example of that and then going back to kind of a prototype version, basically, what were your kind of thoughts on that? It was really easy to notice in Rope, um, yeah. which like first movie to do that, give him props. And like it was very smooth. And if I didn't know, if I wasn't a filmmaker and I didn't know that's what was happening, I probably wouldn't have noticed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. The thing about Rope is that this the script started as a play. So it's kind of ma- it takes place in one room. It's kind of made to be done like that. And, and and I think that of all of the scripts that you could have chosen to attempt this style with, this was the right script. Which first know, of all, the Psycho. script is great. I think I think Psycho would have been really good as a one, <laughs> a one shot, one take. <laughs> um but yeah, no, but I think because everything is so time sensitive, like that's the thing about the one take film is that it's got to be more than a gimmick. Mm-hmm. Birdman feels gimmicky because there isn't, a, it's hard to trace like a reason that Birdman is done in one take. Yeah. Other than it would be kind of cool. With 1917, there's this ticking clock. We have to get mm-hmm. there. We have to get there. So we are with you the whole way. Yeah. With Rope, again, I think there's this ticking clock of someone has to find this body. So it's sitting in this room with everyone here. And the chest that the body is hidden in is almost constantly in front of the camera in, a, in the foreground. Mm-hmm. So it's like we have to someone is going to have to figure this out so it's like a ticking clock of like is it going to be them is it going to be that guy is it going to be jimmy stewart like who's it going to be um so i think that that is the i think this script worked well for that i agree yeah but it isn't necessarily pulled off as well as it could have been Right. Mainly, I think, because of the technological limitations that you're under. The cameras are super heavy. The lights are super hot. We can only shoot 11 minutes at a time. So it's it's you're under much more like limitations than a movie like 1917, where you're shooting on an I think an Alexa Mini or an LF an LF Mini, something like that, where you're. I mean, it's just Roger Deakins and his camera dudes running around the English countryside with this camera that weighs like five pounds versus a very, very large camera on probably a very, very large dolly in a studio setting. Um, So I, I think that it's pulled off well. And I think that the script as well as it could be. And I think, but I think the main thing is that the script kind of calls for it. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a long meandering kind of discussion of that. But yeah, yeah. But I think that of all the scripts you could choose, this is a, this is a good one for that. There's that ticking clock feeling of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't I don't think that it's it's as effective. I think one of the main things for me, and I don't know 
your feelings on this. I'm talking a lot. But the main thing for me is that because it kind of all takes place in that one room and because to the cinematographer's credit, the compositions are great. Right. And it's like the shot composition is great. The lighting doesn't really change because you're in a studio. So, but because of that, I didn't like, I didn't pick up on the fact that like where there were cuts and where there weren't because it didn't feel like enough. It changed. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So with a movie like 1917, because it's progressing forward and the camera is constantly moving forward, the camera never goes backwards in the film. Mm -hmm. And because the camera is constantly moving forward, it it feel there's that momentum of it and you can feel the camera moving Mm -hmm. with this because it would move to a composition and stop and then move and have a cool moving shot and then stop at another composition i didn't feel it as much it felt like just editing within the camera much like wes anderson does Mm mm-hmm which is cool. It's that's a whole feat in yeah. of itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing I thought was cool is even though everything happens real time, it also happens mm-hmm. in accelerated time. Yes. So yeah. like um realistically a dinner party would be longer than that. Mm-hmm. The whole movie is only in an hour and 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's um, right about 80 minutes. And the sun goes down in the background behind them. So like the, the whole background outside the window changes over the course of the movie. It goes from it's daytime to sunset and maybe night. I think it also does night. Yeah. It, it, um, it ends at night. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a really cool detail that, add, that adds to it and it, it moves the story along so subtly but so perfectly to where it like if if it, if it didn't do that then it would be like okay this is this all happened in an hour 20 minutes mm-hmm. but that's but it doesn't feel that way at all right yeah which i think is another i think coming from a play where you can kind of get away with compressing time like that and moving into another medium that is known for compressing time through editing. I, and I think it adds to the like feeling of the film being edited. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, because the time is compressed. It, it feels, it feels more like a traditional film. Uh, you may have seen this, but Hitchcock as well did not feel like it came off as well as it could have. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, kind of brushed the film off as a stunt a little bit where he was just like, yeah, I tried it. It didn't work. I moved on. Um, which if I may take it tangentially a little bit, I'm going to requesting your permission. Oh, you're, you're, Oh yeah. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> one. This is one of the reasons that I think Hitchcock is one of, the greatest directors um, kind of in the 
American Hollywood world. I mean, obviously he was British, but I was, I was about he, to say. he, he made you. his, the majority of his films that he's known for were made in America in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. A few made in England, um, including the 39 steps and the original man who knew too much, just in case anyone is like a film history buff. Yeah, I'm aware. Anyway, a lot of his like major works are done in America. But what's crazy is that at the time that Hitchcock was really making stuff, a lot of people didn't weren't paying attention to what he was doing because he was pumping out a movie like every year. Like every year a movie was coming out that had his name on it that he had directed and he's making a TV show multiple TV shows over the course of his, his career. So he's just playing basically. Mm-hmm. And you see that in this film and you see it in other films. Um, one of his earliest films, I've seen about 10 of his films um, working on watching more, but I've seen about 10 of his films. So it's like a pretty nice round. I've seen from late sixties um, and I've seen early 40s so kind of that 20 year gap is kind of what we're spanning and early films of his like saboteur um feel like a prototype for what he's going to be doing later in a lot of his uh films with the um mistaken man trope and things like that those like watching saboteur felt like watching an a prototype of north by northwest that's okay. like essentially what it feels like for watching these films and rope kind of falls. It's his first color film and he's playing. He's like, okay, I got some credibility. You know, I think he had just done strangers on a train. I want to say that's the film that came before it. And he's just like, I'm just playing. I'm going to do whatever I want. Uh, and we're going to go. So, that I think that's why he's such an interesting director because he's just making movie after movie after movie, really good, long lasting films and playing. I'm going to try it. And if it doesn't work, then it's just, it was a stunt and he, uh, something we'll probably talk about later. He wasn't necessarily stoked on Jimmy Stewart's casting uh, and the role that Jimmy Stewart played, but he was just kind of like, yeah, I did it. I tried it here's what didn't work, here's what did, and moved on and did the next one. Mm-hmm. So I'm. he's just, he's just, he's recognizing that like that is, that's what filmmaking is. It's seeing what was good, what wasn't, where do we go next? Mm-hmm. He had not done Strangers on a Train yet. He had just done Notorious um, and then moved into uh rope after that um and you know he just has runs of you know rope in 48 strangers on a train in 51 dial in for murder rear window to catch a thief the trouble with harry the man who knew too much in a row so the the man just and then a couple other movies and then vertigo north by northwest psycho the birds marnie all in a row. So I I guess the lesson for filmmakers is just explore 
and try things and not everything is going to be a hit but try it of course you're not you're also not hitchcock yeah that's one thing i wish i had done more in college was like get experimental with stuff instead of Mm -hmm. doing like okay i know i can make this and i know i can make this well but i was i was playing within the box instead of branching out and being like okay if I try this, it may not end the way I want it to. It may not turn out the way I want it to. It may not look good. It may not sound good. It may not be good. But I'll have tried something and I will have learned, okay, so next time I want to do something similar to this, I need to do this instead. Or just say, all right, that just straight up doesn't work. So I won't try to do that anymore. Um, well, and we... Like Hitchcock had to have all of this money and had to get permission to do something that's as experimental as like rope is, right? Mm -hmm. We live in an age where we just have everything at our fingertips. So why wait? Right. And it's, I mean, it's that fear of failure. It's that fear that we aren't going to be good enough, that we, whatever we make isn't going to be good and so we kind of play it safe, but like all of the equipment we have is so much cheaper. We, we don't, we're not limited to 11 minutes at a time. We're not limited to, um, you know, we're limited to how much storage our terabytes of hard drives can hold. Uh, so, I th- so I think that's an interesting kind of idea mm-hmm. that we get from him and that. Yeah. So let's jump into the performances a little bit. I want to hear your thoughts and feelings on that. So in general, I'm not the biggest fan of old movies, and this is why. I followed it up that quickly with this is why, (laughs) because I have a reason, and I know the reason, and people may disagree with this reason or not, but this is my reason, and this is what I believe is why. Because they're performed like stage plays. Yeah. For the most part, older movies, like movies, I'd say up into the 60s, for the, for the most part, for the most part up into the 60s, sometimes in the 60s, but also not all of the movies like that. They are performed as with the same style as a stage play would be which made more sense for this because it also was a stage play but at the same time like i'm 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 watching a movie i'm i'm not watching a stage play i want nuance and it's i i have a hard time criticizing because i'm like yeah like this is still early for color film, only like a couple decades into sound and only like half a century into movies as, a, as in general. So like how much, how much change, like how much has the world been used to movies to where they are training people to act for movies versus acting for stage. But at the same time, like, they're acting for stage. Yeah. 
So kind of the turning point for that style of acting was Marlon Brando in Street Streetcar Named Desire and then On the Waterfront, both of which were like huge landmark films and huge landmark performances um, because he came in and acted with subtlety and nuance, which was not something that was really done before. And so it opened the door for men a lot of time to be more realistic and subtle in their acting. Unfortunately for women that hung around for a long time, and there's probably a lot of sexism and issues with how Hollywood treats women that we could discuss there. All that to say, this movie is 48. Uh, Streetcar Named Desire was 51. So mm-hmm. we're looking at right before that is kind of beginning. Okay. Um, but you're right. Um, that that's a huge, huge thing. Uh, especially for men, and this movie is heavily carried by men. Mm-hmm. But it, it's your act. There's a difference in acting, and it's big and it's um even some of the writing in some capacity is more telling not showing yeah um yeah that's another thing that wasn't super thrilled about yeah and that's in this movie i think carrying over from being a play and the fact that it's in one location yeah and so we can't show whoever doing whatever because we're locked into this room and it's a dinner party like they're having conversation so it it made sense but also the movie was like 50 percent very unremarkable dialogue yes yeah which i would argue is kind of the point of the movie is that these dudes just committed a murder and the dead body is in the room. But sure, let's talk about they're in the room. Where it but sure, let's talk about. Uh, let's talk about, uh, you know, that time that we went up to the farm in Connecticut. Seems like a good thing to talk about right now. Uh so I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna jump right into where we differ. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Go for because it. Because I think the one performance that was the most natural and I enjoyed the most was Jimmy Stewart. I I liked his performance. He still has the old the older acting style that I'm not the most that I'm not a huge fan of, but it feels more natural and just older than what I would describe as the stage performances of every other actor in it. Yes. So Jimmy Stewart, I think is probably an exception, not maybe not an exception. He is one of the actors who stands out um, in these films and the actors that we look back on and really the actors that were awarded in their time are the ones who still break that mold a little bit of being kind of stale actors and people who are actually very, very charming. And Jimmy Stewart is unique in that he took on a wide variety of roles. You know, there are a lot of other actors. I love Gene Kelly. A lot of his films are like the same thing. He does it very well, but it's like the same thing. 
but here you have Jimmy Stewart taking on uh, even like this really unique role. That said, I think Jimmy Stewart is a very good actor. And it's my issue with him in this film is not that I think his performance was bad because I don't think it was. My issue is that I don't think he was well suited for this role. Uh, I think I don't think that this role played to his strengths. I don't think that it played to what he does well. Um, and I think he pushed himself a lot, and I still think that he gave a good performance. But there were times that there's a certain type of role that Jimmy Stewart can play. But it felt like what Cadell, his character, needed was to be really charming and really like be able to play the room really well. Mm-hmm. And that Jimmy Stewart plays when you boil down a lot of his roles, though they are very wide ranging, a lot of times his roles are kind of the lovable out of his element um outsider um which is why i think he does so well with the the wrong man mistaken identity hitchcock films but even like george bailey he's like all the all of these things are like happening to him and he's trying to catch up and figure out Mm -hmm. harvey is the same way so he's very much the everyday man exactly and what we what that role his role as the professor is is like the guy in the room who's smarter than everyone and is like playing everyone. Mm-hmm. And I didn't buy that from him. And maybe it's because I have more of a cultural context of Jimmy Stewart other than rope. But to me, it just it didn't feel as effective. And I was I reading, yeah, I was reading that originally Cary Grant was kind of the one Hitchcock wanted. And I think that Cary Grant would have been able to do that uh, because he plays that kind of role where he can kind of play the room and play everyone. And he's just like incredibly charming. Um, So I think that, I think he would have played the role better. I can see that. Yeah. I, so I just double checked to make sure that this statement was true and this is going to offend a lot of people maybe <laughs> even you i have not seen a single cary grant movie i don't know if i'm, I'm going offended to apologize i i but i i yeah i have not seen a single cary grant movie i've heard of a he's lot in, of them he's in some great films yes he's in some great films um and he does really well in that he has a lot of wide ranging films as well. So he can do screwball comedy, he can do spy thriller. Um, but I but kind of what it comes down to is Cary Grant is just charming as heck, man. He just he can play a room, and that's what Rope needed, and that's kind of what the character was set up to be. And I didn't feel like Stewart delivered. And to be fair, Jimmy Stewart didn't feel like he delivered. And Hitchcock years later said that he didn't feel like Stewart delivered. So I'm not, I feel like I'm in good company. But also, half of 
an actor's performance and fit mm-hmm. is on the director. Yes. So like yeah. if if Hitchcock was like, okay, he may not have been the best cast. It's on him then to make up for the difference. Mm. And and I do think that the movie still works well. I agree. Yeah. I, I I don't mean to make it sound like I think that Jimmy Stewart ruins this movie. I think that he does, in fact, make it better. And I think that his performance is great. But I think that coming in with coming in now, especially it's hard to separate like a cultural context of knowing who Jimmy Stewart is and especially knowing it's a wonderful life and then watching rope where he kind of plays this kind of sick and twisted philosophical teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that it's hard to come in with all of that, like foreknowledge, but at the same time, I think that, so I, I think that could have changed my view on his performance. All that to say, I think he still did a good job. I just don't know that of all of the movie stars working in 1948 that could have carried this film. Um, he was not the best choice. And I say that because the two actors who are essentially the leads, um, Brandon and Philip, I think Brandon did a great job. Like, mm-hmm. I think he gave a truly like chilling performance. Mm-hmm. You, you, you sounded like you were going to say something. I mean, like, I guess no, no, I, I don't think I was actually. <laughs> but Jimmy Stewart is like the the top build like movie star on this, and I think what his role needed to do was be someone who could like coalesce the movie together and be a driving force. And I didn't feel like Jimmy Stewart did that as well as he as that role kind of needed. So I feel like I feel like the modern day equivalent would be Tom Hanks being cast in the role when um, George Clooney should have been cast in the role. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably a good a good thing, um, a good explanation of it. You're you're glad to see that Tom Hanks is like pushing himself and trying something outside of his like normal box. But he isn't quite as like mysterious and menacing as George Clooney could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and mysterious, I think, is especially key. I think that's what the film needed as someone who was mysterious. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think... We'll jump over to the script for just a little bit. I think that this movie might win for like number of like double entendres related to murder, like Mm -hmm. related to the murder that happened. It's kind of crazy how much they, they just are constantly dropping puns because it's like they, they want you to know I killed a man today. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's one of the things like I'm torn about the writing because it's equal parts really really creative and witty and self-referential but at the same time it's like 
can you just can you can you talk about something interesting maybe or or do something maybe yeah it's it's hard it's hard because like within all of the really good references to the murder that took place is really boring dialogue Mm -hmm. well i think i think that might be back to a limitation of shooting somewhat in one shot and in one take because you can't cut around to what to get into people's faces and feel what they're feeling you're only you're only able to see either hear what's going on and see something else or you know we're 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 locked in to one thing that's happening at a time whereas if we're able to edit we can cut to the other room we can cut to we can build tension in the cuts of the film one of hitchcock's favorite thing is a montage or a, a montage as he would say and where you're building tension and changing and and gripping your audience and that's one of the things this movie kind of lacks is it doesn't really escalate very much because the way Hitchcock escalates and ups the pacing is through editing. And when you take that away, you don't have as much tension in that regard. Mm -hmm. You don't have as much intensity. There's plenty of tension, right? But you don't have as, you don't have that same intensity and every everything everything is paced based on performance mm-hmm. instead of cut length and and how long it's going to take the camera to move mm-hmm. um and how well choreographed the scene is mm-hmm. so i yeah i think that that's a that's a major major thing right there yeah do you have any other things that you wanted to kind of pick out about the film um i laughed a little bit when they were fighting for the gun because it was like a good 10 seconds of just really awkward hand holding (laughs) and I, i was watching it and i'm thinking this is the lamest struggle for a gun i have ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. Well, something I noticed this time, and I think this again goes back to the whole um uh pacing and like intensity issue, is that there is no score to this film. It's like completely silent the whole time, except for when someone's playing the piano. So when you have this struggle over a gun. And there's no score and it's just two grown men trying to get a gun out of each other's hands. It's really awkward for 10 seconds. And it's kind of boring. Yeah. Because it's it's. It's just the sound of like clothes ruffling. Yep. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was that was it, it was funny to watch it was awkward to watch and it was a bit painful to watch 
all at the same time because I'm like, it's, oh, they're still, they're still going. They're They're doing it. Still nobody, nobody has control and they're still going. Okay. (laughs) Yep. So I guess that kind of wraps us up a little bit there. Uh, We forgot to do this last week, but we'll do it this week for Rope. Uh, what would you rate this film and would you rewatch it? I gave this a 3.5 out of five. Cool. Um, the extra, it, it got an extra half star because of Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> of course. Um, would I rewatch it? Probably. I don't know that I would just be like, oh, hey, I'm going to watch this. I'd probably need some kind of reason but it wouldn't take too much to get me to rewatch it but i'm probably not gonna just like grab it off my shelf for one because i don't have it so i'd have to rent it but <laughs> yeah like yeah i, I i'd rewatch it yeah uh i gave it a four um i just i think that the ambition of the project even though it may not have delivered quite as much as it wanted to the ambition of the project really um, deserves that that four stars, and yeah, I'd rewatch it. Um, I do own it, so um, I, yeah, I would probably rewatch it and see it again. I just I think that it's such a such a good time. Maybe not a good time. I feel like that's wrong to say about a murder movie, but uh, okay. I I had a good time watching it because of that reason. Because it was it was really it it was really cool watching it, setting aside the fact that this was about murder and watching them with all of the double entendres and mm-hmm. everything, all of the oh oh oh, he's about to do oh no, he didn't he didn't find it. like it was a lot of fun to watch mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, well cool. Do you want to recommend something for us? Yeah. So my recommendation, we've already talked about um, a, a bit in this episode, um, and it's very thematic to the one take, is 1917, a movie that does it better. It's <laughs> uh, the camera work. Well, maybe not camera work. The cinematography of Roger Deakins, the one, the only, the podcaster, Roger Deakins. Um, yeah, 1917 is my rec. Before I do mine, have you have you listened to his podcast yet? Not yet, unfortunately. Yeah, I've been meaning to. It's on the list of things that I need to do, but I have not done that yet. So my recommendation is also going to be tied in thematically um though a little bit looser so fun little movie history just for a hot second if you'll allow that uh rope along with several other hitchcock movies uh, including rear window uh were lost for a while um the rights of those films were owned by hitchcock himself and they were uh given away to like a family member when he died and so they just kind of sat somewhere for a long time and finally were re-released as like the five lost Hitchcocks. Um, that included 
Rear Window and The Man Who Knew Too Much, Round 2, and a couple other films. So my recommendation for this week is one of my favorite films, and that's Rear Window. Uh, it's also Jimmy Stewart uh, in a performance that I think suits him better and has probably my one of my favorite Hitchcock cameos, though I think Rope probably has my favorite. Um, so yeah, there you go. Sweet. Zach, I believe that means that it's your turn to pick next week. So what will we be watching? Next week, we will be talking about Once. It's a 2007 movie direct, written and directed by John Carney. Cool. I'm excited. This one's been on my list for a while. Mm. So, um, so yeah. So if you're listening, um, first off, congrats. You made it, you made it to the end of the episode. We did this together. Um, I'm proud of us. Um, yeah. Check out once, watch it with us. Um, and if you have comments, questions, concerns, recommendations of what we should watch on the podcast, maybe something that we haven't seen, um, you know, something we haven't talked about yet. We're always looking for those. We like movies, like watching them a lot. So, uh, yeah, you can find us on, you can find me on Instagram at Seth Scruggs. You can find Zach on Instagram at Bashful Coyote. And you can also follow MarkSpotsTheX.Productions on Instagram. That's where we put all of our stuff that we make. And uh, you can follow us both on Letterboxd at Seth Scruggs at Zachary Vaughn. Um, that's just a social media for people who like movies. So you can go under our letterbox and follow us and see what we're watching. In addition to what we watch for this podcast. Uh, it's a good time. I think that's everything. I think that I've promoted the heck out of us. I think so. Uh, yeah. Um, and with that, I'll see you next week. Zach. All right. I'll see you.